I love scotch. 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 Yep. Have another whiskey. If you'd like to speak to me in person, press one. If you'd like to order drugs, press hash. <laughs> I had a gentleman in the crowd that was like, tell me how to drink Glenfiddich. And I was like, I will not do that. Yep. You drink Glenfiddich how you want to drink Glenfiddich. Wear a cowboy hat in Los Angeles and look at the amount of looks you get. Yeah, it's unbelievable. This is the most flamboyant city on earth. You wear a cowboy hat, people look at you like you are yep. like an alien. The Beatles came on and they might pick me up on his shoulder. George Harrison is as close to me as that wall now. I went, all right, George, all right. And he went, cough. <laughs> and that was the closest <laughs> I ever came to the Beatles. We have a whiskey while we... Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Cheers, Cheers. 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 Yep. Hello and welcome to the inaugural broadcast of United States of Dramerica, the whiskey podcast that's not about whiskey. My name is Dan Rutstein. I'm a former British diplomat and now co-host of this What's Going to Be Wonderful podcast with... I am Chris Cusseter, former international and professional rugby player for Scotland and currently selling Scotch whiskey in California. Oh, sounds like somebody who should be on a podcast about whiskey. So um, we're delighted that even though we're only 20 seconds into our podcasting career, we already have a sponsor, which is lovescotch.com. Now, Chris, tell us how we've managed to get this sponsor. So lovescotch.com is an e-commerce website, and they are passionate about bringing you the world's finest distilled spirits. It also happens to be my business, so they have uh, generously contributed and decided to sponsor the podcast. And well, be thank you for the microphone, Chris. <laughs> they will be with us for the foreseeable future. Wonderful. Um, and I can say, if you ever find yourself in uh, in Southern California and you need uh, one of six or 700 different whiskeys, Love Scotch is your place. Indeed, or 500 bourbons or 700 tequilas, for that matter. Let's not talk about bourbon. I think, uh, as a former British diplomat, I still feel semi-obliged to promote the Scotch industry, although, of course, to our American listeners, bourbon and rye are, I guess, somewhat drinkable. Um, so you probably want to know why you're listening. And why you're listening is because this fantastic podcast, United States of Dramerica, yes, that was my idea, and it is very clever, thank you, um, is a, it's going to be a weekly chat about all things whiskey. But this isn't going to be getting into the detail of exactly how long different whiskies are aged in the barrels and all that stuff. I mean, there's plenty of much more experienced whiskey connoisseurs out there who can get into this. This is more about the principle of drinking whiskey and why people drink whiskey and how they drink whiskey and each week we're going to get on a fascinating guest who's going to tell us their whiskey story um and that's basically what we're going to be talking about so um you see a lot of whiskey drinkers chris what do you do about whiskey that made you give up professional sport and start selling it for a living well just let me jump back a little bit there, sure. there is a side of whiskey that is very, I would say boring. If it gets too geeky, you find it a little bit boring. We'll probably edit this out. Um, but what we're interested in is more the way it brings people together, um, the stories that you that are associated with it, the people you can meet, the places you can drink it. That's why I found it interesting. I discovered Scotch whiskey whilst in California um, at a friend's house who had the most incredible collection of Scotch whiskey I'd ever seen. And I was just fascinated by the beauty of the bottles and the variety. 
and the different brands and I it just opened up a whole new world to me and I was I was looking for something after rugby that really made me passionate as passionate as I was about rugby I wanted to find that and I felt like I found that in Scotch whiskey so you know here I am in California selling bottles of Glengarry uh, whiskey which is a distillery only 15 miles from my hometown hometown of Aberdeen and I just find it absolutely fascinating that these small distilleries in Scotland can have such a global reach yeah I mean uh, with all due respect, um, you'll get more, a lot more global reach with Scottish whisky than you would do with Scottish rugby. Uh, not entirely fair, but uh, probably true. Uh, there's Scottish whisky. I think the way it's it's looked at, revered around the world, is actually quite incredible. And especially in America, it's a huge it's a huge brand. Scottish whisky. Um, it's very very heavily protected by the Scottish whisky industry. Um, it has that prestige. It's, it's, it's the most sought after and the most traded. Um, whiskey on the on the secondary market you see bottles of Macallan going for I think two bottles of Macallan were sold the other week for over a million dollars a piece and that's just absolutely incredible I think it's um it's something that I'm trying to be involved with in, in a small way here in California but I also love the experiences that it's given me and one of my favorite experiences of drinking whiskey was up at this hotel up in the highlands in uh, in space cycle the Downs Hotel and I was staying there by myself just going a little whiskey tour and I met this American guy who had traveled over for work and he had two days to spare. He travelled up to the Speyside, spent two days travelling around the whiskey distilleries, and we sat one night and drank whiskey in this bar. We shared a Macallan 40-year-old together, and it was just unbelievable. Presumably he paid for it. Um, actually, we were <laughs> very generously given a dram by the owner of the hotel. <laughs> Lovely people. Must be, a, must be a rugby fan. And most people have to go back and visit sometime and see if uh, my name is still in good stead there. But um, He obviously didn't see the Italy game. Um, in 2007 <laughs> very good Dan thank you for bringing that up no of course I think it's important our readers understand Chris's limitations <laughs> indeed but um, no I you know we're, to be honest I find that everyone in the whiskey industry they're the same type of people I encountered in my professional rugby career they're very just generally good people very generous hospitable um, salt of the earth type people mm. and it's um, I, I have to say my experience in the industry is, has proved that to be the case great and like rugby heavy drinkers <laughs> Perhaps in the amateur days, Dan, but it's um, in 2018. This is a very professional. No, no, of, co- of course that must be right. Um, so, as part of the sort of structure of this, um, each week we're going to be drinking a whiskey, um, and I think that's part of the fun of this. We'll invite guests on. We will give them a bottle of their favourite whiskey, courtesy of Lovescots.com, um, and then we'll have a we'll have a drink and talk to them about it. So, given that I'm effectively interviewing you this week, Chris, what whiskey have you brought along? Okay, so today I have brought along a Glengarry 15-year-old. Uh, yeah, so this, um, the distillery is 15 miles from my from the house I grew up in Aberdeen. I hadn't visited it until I was 32 years old, which is... Hold on, less talking, more pouring. You can tell me about it when I've got a glass of it. So let's, uh, let's have some. Cheers. Cheers. Right, sorry, where were we? So, yes, this is a, a Glengarry 15-year-old. Oh, it's nice, actually. It's lovely, yeah, very heavily sherried whiskey. Mm. Strong. I think it's fifty-seven percent alcohol, so it's got a real bite to it. But that richness and those those dried fruit flavors just come through so strongly. So this distillery is fifty miles from my house, as I was saying. Um, that I grew up in Aberdeen. I didn't visit the distillery until about four years ago, when I took an interest in the. In the but when you were growing up, did you know it was there? Is that a thing that people I, in your you know town what I actually, knew actually about? Didn't I? You know, I think that, you know, I'm almost sure that the biggest selling whiskey in Scotland is Jack Daniels, as it would be in England as well. And um, single malt. If anyone from Jack Daniels corporate is listening, there's nothing wrong with Jack Daniels. <laughs> there's nothing wrong as long as there's plenty of coke in it. Yeah, or ginger ale or anything. Indeed. But um, 
it's you know single malt was something that yeah it was a complete mystery to me um and then scotch whiskey in general i thought well that's something i might get into when i'm older mm. like most people if you have a, a bad experience drinking a, a cheap blend probably puts you off for you know for a decade or so until you come back to it and that's what that's what happened to me i took a took an interest past the age of 30 and uh yeah it's it's one of those things once you go down that rabbit hole you want to keep learning um it's fascinating it's intriguing it's it can you know the places it can take you is just it's just incredible do you remember your first decent scotch first decent scotch i think i don't know the first time i i think the first time i fell in love with that i was given i was given a bottle of mortlich um fine and rare I think it was called it was the kind of expensive one in the square bottle I was given a bottle and it just that was the first time it really took hold and I just literally sat in my living room by myself and drank it and looked up tasting notes and tried to try to appreciate it tried to sip it were you still a rugby player at the time I was still a rugby player it was probably it must have been after a game maybe on a, on a Saturday or a Sunday and it, take, it takes time to appreciate Scotch whiskey it doesn't just you know it doesn't just reveal itself to you immediately you have to take time to sit with it understand it understand how it's made and the craftsmanship that's gone into it and then I think you can fully appreciate what it is to taste it and understand what you could be tasting you know there's always tasting notes and suggestions and they're very powerful but you know the longer you do it the more you can start picking up these really subtle notes of things that there's no reason why they're in there there's no there's nothing added to it it just comes out of the cask when it's uh, when it's sat and matured in a you know a, a damp warehouse near Aberdeen for 15 years the, the flavors it can give you and, ha- and and bear in mind we're in america where you know I've, I've seen some incredible whiskies ruined with with ice out here i've also seen people refuse to put water in there because you know under prohibition when drinks were watered down i think some americans still see putting water in a drink as sort of spoiling it I know my way of drinking it is I tend to just have a little bit neat if it's a new whiskey just to try it, but then it's sort of a splash of water, probably, I don't know exactly, but sort of 10% maybe, maybe a little bit more. Um, How do you drink yours? Personally, I like it neat. If it's very high alcohol, sometimes it can use just a teaspoon of water just to bring down the the alcohol a little bit and take away a little bit of that burn. But I've, I've never enjoyed it with ice because I... I don't. I see. I feel like it's more of a winter drink. Drinking in California is sometimes a bit interesting, especially in the summer. It's 113 degrees today, so to sit and drink a scotch feels somewhat unusual. Um, That's 44 for our English listeners. Yeah, beg your pardon. That's fine. I'm very American. It's difficult. We've got global listenership here. We just have to make sure we're appealing to everybody. Have I softened my tea as well? Did I say water or water? Uh, That's fine. They'll understand broadly. Highly embarrassing. But um, yeah, no, and, and to be honest, you know, scotch can be drunk whichever way you like. There's no, there's no right or wrong way. Now, you saying that you ruin a dram with a with a glass of ice is um, is fine because you don't like it like that. Certain people like it as a nice, refreshing. Drink. I know mm. people who work in the industry for thirty years who like drinking whiskey with ice. There's mm. no, there's no right or wrong. I would say that adding coke to a, a nice, you know, twenty five year old single malt would probably cross the line. But you know, if, that, if that's the way you like it, there's no, you know, there's there's a, there's sometimes a snobbery associated with with whiskey, which I try to stay away from because the more people that drink it, the better. It's 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 a wonderful product, it should be enjoyed. But you know, each to their own. Yeah, no, I think I think that's probably right. So let's talk about you. So um, when did you realise that you were going to be good enough at rugby to play for your country? I don't know if I ever really knew that until it happened. I, you know, I was never one that was blessed with 
um, that innate, innate self-confidence. I just kind of tried to work my way up, but I studied law in Edinburgh University. I spent way more time. Because you wanted to be a lawyer or just in the way that in Britain people study one thing and do something else just because it was a degree you were interested exactly. in? Exactly. It, it was a good degree to get. My father was a lawyer and I didn't know what else I wanted to do. So at age 18, how, how, how could you? But um, good degree, quite hard to get into. Okay, that'll do. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't have a passion for it and I spent more time training and in the gym and, and focusing on that. So I kind of knew that that's the route I wanted to go down at that point. And I think age 21, I think I just turned 21, I was I signed a first, my first professional contract. And With which team? Uh, it was with a team called the Borders or the Border Reavers at that point. It was the third Scottish professional team uh, who are now disbanded, sadly. But um, yeah. Was that your fault? Um, not entirely, <laughs> not entirely, partially perhaps. So I had four four good years, years there, kind of learning, learning my trade. I know this was a few years ago, but what was your first contract? What was your wage? First contract? Oh, if you can remember that far back. I believe it was £25,000. A year. A year, which is not bad. I'm sure there's there's young kids now that would, would sign for less, but at the time it seemed like a fortune. You know, I'd been a yeah. student. And all of a sudden, I could uh, pay my rent and you know lease a car and, and have a few quid in my back pocket. No, so no, I no. I mean, don't knock it. My, I was a journalist in my first career before I became a diplomat, and my my starting salary, at my paper in Yorkshire was seven and a half thousand pounds a year. Yeah. So you were you know three hundred and seventy percent ahead of me. <laughs> um, so well, I got lots of free stuff um, as a journalist, but it's not the same as actually being paid a living wage. Yeah, it's all, it's all relative. Age twenty one, we, we never had any money. That's there still is a lot of money. Yeah, no, yeah, no, no complaints at all. It was, it was a fun time. You know, I remember that, the first training session. I just couldn't believe. I, I couldn't get over the fact I was getting paid to train. That, that was just such a novelty. And that lasted for a little while, and then you, you do become accustomed to it. But I think that first pre-season, we had this yeah, New Zealand coach called Tony Gilbert, who coached the All Blacks, and it, he was known for, in one day of pre-season, he wanted to try and get in 100 down-and-ups during the session. 100? 100 down-and-ups. So it was at the end of... For, a, for the non-athletes among us, to explain what they... Essentially, is, you know, you, your chest hits the ground, and you stand up, and that's it, really, but... We'd had a full day's training. We'd been in the gym, we'd done a rugby session, we'd done a fitness session, and then at the end of this fitness session, he threw in 100 down and ups. But it came in the form of hitting a tackle bag and then running back five mirrors, hitting a tackle bag, doing that five times, and then doing five down and ups at the end, and then doing 10 rounds of that. And I think to this day, it's actually genuinely the most tired I've ever been. Wow. And it was, it was just this weird thing where once you're finished, it was, it was quite exhilarating with the time. It was. It's one of those things that you just got used to. You used to a lot of strange things as a professional rugby player, and you just didn't question them. And that was definitely one of them. It was a real eye opener to that world, mm. of, you know, professional sport. Where did you start realizing that there was more than just the Borders team? Well, you know, at 2007, that team was disbanded for financial reasons, and I'd always had a hankering to go to France. And I went down to a place called Perpignan, right down the south of France, mm. on, the, on the Mediterranean side. A beautiful little Mediterranean town uh, on the beach. Great rugby team, amazing stadium, 14,000-seat stadium. So I went down there and, and had a chat and ended up signing a two-year deal. So I, I think I was age 25 when I went down there. And, and you still hadn't played for Scotland at this point? No, I had, yeah. Oh, I, had, sorry. No, I think I played for Scotland that first year, maybe. Yeah, at the end of my first year. So 2004, I'd, I'd picked up uh, my first caps. But yeah, you know, so 2007, just after the World Cup, we moved down to France for two years, and yeah, it was amazing. Another, another. So, what was it about France that you liked? I presumably it had a certain je ne sais quoi. 
Stop it, Dan. Stop it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a magical two years. I nearly, I kind of wanted to stay longer. I nearly signed for another French team. Um, and then I, in the end, I decided to come back to Scotland um, for a few other reasons. But spent five years in Glasgow and latterly a couple of years down in Manchester. So, so let's talk about your, your Scotland career. So being asked to represent your country is a huge thing presumably had you played sort of schoolboy for Scotland or was your full team your first international game no I'd done all that stuff you know that's not that difficult I don't think you know in the grand scheme of things to play Scottish schools or Scotland under 18s under 21 so yeah I did, I did that you know growing up in Aberdeen I never really felt like playing for Scotland was a possibility it was um, surreal so the, the first it was the first game of the Six Nations down in Cardiff so so I expected to be on the bench, come off the bench, which would be a nice, somewhat gentle introduction. But I got told I was starting, so right. quite frankly, I was kind of shitting myself. Yeah. Um, Apologies to those under the age of 21. <laughs> they shouldn't be listening to this because it's about whiskey. Was, were you given any sort of sage advice by any sort of senior players about you know what it's going to be like? No, I mean, it was, it was nice. Like I had... I had so many phone calls and texts. I think they, they must have announced a team maybe on Thursday. So so many people getting in touch, which was lovely. But on the Wednesday night, I think we we all went out for dinner as a squad and they invited some of the ex-internationals along. So a chap called Finlay Calder, who was part of the 1990 Grand Slam winning Scotland team, um, he, he he was sat next to me at dinner and he... Um, you know, he was chatting about it and he said, you know, Chris, um, getting your first cap is very much like losing your virginity. And I kind of nodded along respectfully because it's Finlay Calder. But in my head, I'm thinking, Finlay, I don't know about you, but there wasn't 74,000 people watching when I lost my virginity. Um, and it certainly didn't last 80 minutes. <laughs> um, Apologies again to our younger listeners. Um, so, no, but uh, yeah, it was it was a bit of a baptism of fire. And if I'm honest, I probably it, was, it probably came a little bit too soon, but anyway, yeah. it was just... <laughs> like losing your... Anyway, okay, um, good. Um, no, I had a good run, no complaints. And, you know, I look back on it and it went by in a flash. It was 13 years. But some of the laughs that we had and the, you know, the people I met and the places we traveled, just, there's a, there's a guy at Glasgow I was thinking about earlier. He's one of the, um, he's the kit guy, but he also does a lot of masseuse for the guys, a brilliant masseuse. But he was just one of those guys that you loved having around and he just had these little tricks up his sleeve. So there'd a new guy would come in, usually a young kid, you know, 21-year-old, sign his first contract, and he would say, oh, you know, come on, I'll give you a massage, you must be tired after training. And he would get him on the bed, and then he would pull out the massage oil, and then he would have his own special um, supply. And he would say, okay, listen, I'm just going to use this nice exfoliating rub for you, it's just going to be great for your skin. And he would have a little jar, um, jar of strawberry jam. <laughs> he would use the strawberry jam to give the young kid a rub. You know, stuff like that, and then he would have a, he'd always have a supply of chocolate buttons, and he would just slip them down into the into their underwear, so that later in the day they think they you know soiled oh, themselves. You know these, yeah. and these things Brilliant. I've come to realise don't happen in real life. They, they only happen in this tiny little microcosm, little bubble of of professional sport. How did you cope? You know, the day you played your final game. How did you how did you feel about both sort of putting that behind you, but also what it would be like in the real world like what what two other careers did you nearly have in a post-rugby world I think my two other things were potentially working a sports agency or working in property so mm. nothing you know completely different um, property always interested me um, sports agency I thought could be interesting but very very competitive tough market mm. and um, 
ultimately, you know, I thought that whatever happened, you know, running, running my own business would be a beneficial experience. Ultimately, I fell in love with Scotch whiskey. So you, you moved out to California, knowing some people out here, and then you took over this business, and now you are a purveyor of scotch. I am. I, I, sell, yeah, I sell scotch whiskey amongst other things for a living. But, yeah, my, my passion lies in scotch. You know, I, I do love it. I love, yeah, I love exploring. And I'm learning, like everyone, there's so much to learn about scotch whiskey. But it's, also, it's, it's mainly the experiences it's afforded me. So the people I've met, we met actually through... Scotch whiskey, you should mention that. Oh, yeah, we did. So I'm going to tell this story, okay. um, and you can correct me, because we did drink scotch, so I may not remember it exactly, but there's a mutual friend of ours, a wonderful gentleman called Lorne Cousin, who is a whiskey ambassador, which is as somebody who works in a profession where I meet lots of, lots of real ambassadors, as it were, for the diplomatic service. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure actually being a whiskey ambassador is probably a better job. Um, but um, he was a whiskey ambassador for Balvenie, um, and he introduced and we went for lunch at Soho House in West Hollywood and uh, he had a special sort of thing he wanted to share with us um, so we had to order three whiskies um, just so we had whiskey looking whiskey looking drinks on our table um, and the right shaped glasses now I can't I think it was Oban but I think no, it was it was a Glengoyne 10 it was a Glengoyne 10 oh right okay which presumably was the cheapest one on the menu because the point of it was I can't remember if we drunk them or just sort of poured them away in the flower pot but the point was we needed empty glasses so he pulled out a vial of Balvenie 50 which I'm sure we all know goes for $38,000 a bottle and he poured us a little amount I mean it, it was a little amount, but it was probably still two or three hundred dollars worth. And we sneakily tried this most extraordinary whiskey at twelve o'clock yeah. um, at lunchtime, which was an extraordinary experience. It wasn't that you know it was that special. That 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 whiskey is incredibly special. I, mean, I, I didn't think I would ever in my life get to try a whiskey like that. I don't know if you did, but I remember there was one moment where there's a buffet lunch there, and you have to go up and obviously collect your own food. And we left our glasses sitting on the table. There was such a small amount of liquid in there, there was a brief heart-stopping moment when we thought the waiter might sweep them away and pour out the remaining whiskey. So yeah. we had to send somebody back to guard the table. But so we could have lost $1,000 worth of whiskey and not be able to complain about it because we were sort of not really allowed to do that. And, you know, apologies if there's anybody listening from Soho House. That's the only time I've done that, and I promise <laughs> I won't do it again. I hope, actually, that uh, you know maybe Balvenie will sponsor this one day and give us a bottle of 50 each, and that would be nice. Yeah, we could talk uh, about that for yeah, the we could podcast. Talk, yeah, whatever you want, Balvenie, if you're listening, you know, just give us a bottle. We'll talk about it for hours, whether we've got listeners or not. Uh, but it's an extraordinary whiskey, and it's it almost doesn't taste like whiskey um, and nor should it I mean it's and I think this is the thing you know get your head around this 50 years you know you know, we were, we were drinking a whiskey that somebody laid down before you know, not just before we were born but you know I think maybe even before our parents had met yeah. and you know it's, and then that's the thing about whiskey and what makes it so extraordinary in this world of instant or you know, instant gratification. Isn't that something special that a, a, a liquid can be laid down for 50 years before anybody drinks it? I, I mean, I think that's just, just incredible. Yeah, and look, don't get me wrong, I, you know, I, I drink other spirits as well with a sh- shorter lead-in time. You know, I enjoy a, you know, a gin. Um, and, you know, even like t- tequila. I, I do like a tequila, and I know you have over 800 of them at Love yeah, Scotch. Yeah, you should yeah. maybe have a Love Tequila brand as well. Um, <laughs> but even then, you know, the sort of the extra Añejo is still only five years old, I think it is. And it's sort Less of... Is 
the minimum requirements. But um, so yeah, no, there's a, there's something about there's something about scotch which is which is why when you drink it, I always feel like if they if somebody sells you a, a scotch which is twelve years old or older, you should be banned from looking at your mobile phone until you finish drinking it. It's that sort of taking time out to drink it properly. Well, I think is extremely important. They say there's one way of drinking it. Somebody explained this to me when I was learning to drink whiskey, and they said, however many years old it is, that's the number of seconds you should keep it in your mouth for oh. to discover it before you swallow it. Now, with a 50-year-old Balvenie, I think that's probably a little bit excessive. But yeah, although at that value, it's probably entirely appropriate. You should enjoy every, every, every second. But So tell me about your... We've talked about my experience with whiskey... Tell me about yours. Why, why are you interested in it? And, and as an Englishman living in California, how is it, uh, how is it coming to your life? That's a very good question, Chris. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, my whiskey journey, as I like to call it, so is your, is your classic, you know, I drunk whiskey when I was at university very much in the whatever the entry-level blended spirit of the day was with Coke in it or ginger ale. Um, and... I spent a year at university in Canada and uh, I had one particular night where I went out drinking very, very heavily um, in the way that you do when you're young and silly. And I had so much to drink, I was incredibly ill. It was a weird sort of two-day hangover, which is... Well, I don't think I've ever had anything like it, but it, it put me off to an extent where... Um, a few years later when I was working my first career as a journalist we were taken to Ireland uh, paid for by Irish Tourist Board and we got taken to distilleries there and even though it's sort of free whiskey and we're meant to write about it just the smell of whiskey just made me feel sick again it sort of brought back these horrible memories of being a 19 year old so that was it I just didn't drink whiskey for years and then you know fast forward a few years and when I started my second career I got I joined the, the diplomatic service and I got posted to Dusseldorf where I was going to be the deputy consul general uh, and the consul general was a wonderful man called Malcolm Scott who I'm sure is listening to this um, and he was a consul general and he was Scottish you know not just his name he was properly Scottish and I knew that I was going to have to drink whiskey if I was going to get on in my career it just seemed that that was what would happen so one of my wife's friends a gentleman called David Brown who's probably also listening um, who lives in Bermuda um he sort of trained me to drink whiskey so he's got a decent collection and he sort of started sort of telling me what things were and drinking it sort of heavily watered at first and I started on these sort of sort of soft starter whiskies like Singleton from Dufton Mm -hmm. and um, it worked my way up a bit and it got me to a place where I could sort of drink properly um, and then I started my posting and we I think we had a I think it was a welcome reception for me in Dusseldorf if I remember rightly and we had a nice evening and at the end of the evening all the guests went home and the consul general uh, and I were there and he went and got a bottle of Glenfiddich 12 and opened it and I think we drank over half of it um, and I managed very well um, and I just I began a love of whiskey and I started learning more about it and he and I drunk whiskey together and then got invited I think to a whiskey tasting because as a British government you know we have to promote British exports and Scotch is an important British export um, you know thousands tens of thousands of jobs in Scotland are dependent on this product being sent around the world and I think Germany it's not the biggest market. America is the biggest market, but it's an important market. And so we would do whiskey tastings, and we got we had a really good relationship with Diageo. Um, we did lots of whiskey tastings, and um, Malcolm left and went back to the UK, and I I, I ran the Department of Trade for the America, for Germany, 
and I started doing whiskey tastings. I think my favourite one was we did a whiskey tasting on a warship. So it was HMS Sutherland, which is the only ship in the British Navy fleet which was christened with not a bottle of champagne which they normally smash over the front but with a bottle of whiskey um, presumably not about any 50 year old I, I imagine not um, and I, I, I think the captain who was wearing a kilt telling me this story did tell us which whiskey although I can't actually remember but we did an extraordinary whiskey tasting there and then that was a night I, I discovered what I like to call hashtag whiskey diplomacy where you realise you can just bring people together in an extraordinary way so some of it is about promoting scotch but it's about bringing interesting people together to have important conversations about about politics or about business I, I'm no connoisseur of whiskey but I've I've drunk a lot I have contributed to Scottish exports on a personal level um, but I know enough about whiskey now that I can you know I can talk to people about it and use it and I really appreciate it I'm a I really like my whiskey. I've got a decent little collection, um, and nothing extraordinary in there, but just whiskies for the right occasion. And I just, there's something about, I'm very much a sitting down with a whiskey sort of person. If I, if I, I will never drink a whiskey in a bar standing up. Uh, a push I will at a reception, um, but definitely not in a bar. But for me, the whiskies are best junk either at home um, or in a hotel bar because they're more likely to have a big armchair. I can sit down at the end of a long and productive day at work with an interesting person and just sip on a whiskey and, and have a chat and take time out. And that's how I've come to love this thing and why I wanted to do with you, Chris, a podcast about it. It's interesting. I've got a little uh, question for you. Do you know which country per capita drinks the most Scotch whiskey in the world? That's a very good question. I feel like I should know the answer. And I do know that more whiskey is exported to America than anywhere else, but the answer probably is somewhere else. The answer is actually else. France. Yes. more whiskey per head than any other country in the world, which is absolutely astounding to me because I lived there for two years and I genuinely never saw anybody drink Scotch whiskey, but hmm. apparently it's regularly drunk as, a, as an aperitif or a digestif, and it just is a, a cultural culture thing that happens in France that you wouldn't think oh. there you go there you go and that can now be let's, let's do a, a weekly whiskey we fact whiskey for our podcast so that can the be week. the one okay. so merci to the people yep. of France for drinking more per capita than else and merci bien to Chris Cusseter co-host and our first sort of guest on this show thank you and man. cheers it's a pleasure to share this drama of Glengarry 50 with you wonderful and you'll hear from yep. us again next week cheers